Greetings and welcome to another edition of AUHSD Future Talks. I'm your host, Michael Matsuda, the superintendent of the Anaheim Union High School District. And as our 8,000 plus podcast listeners know, this show is all about the future of education and really the future of the world. We've been so blessed to have amazing leaders across this country from uh, top universities, uh, CEOs, and as well as even students and teachers. Today, we are very lucky to have one of the leading experts in the in studying the evolution of social systems, Dr. Mete Miriam Bull of MIT's uh, Systems Awareness Lab, co-founded with Peter Senge. Welcome to the show, Mete. Thank you so much, Mike. It's good to be here. So um, as our listeners know, we always start with sort of a, uh, a question about a little bit about who you are and um, how did you get to where you are? It's sort of, you know, what is your grounding purpose? Yeah, well, I guess there is a short version to this and I'll try to look for it, Mike, because in many ways I've had such a I, I tease people often. They're like, oh, my God, how did you do all that? And I was like, the path looks more or less like my hair. So so uh, so it's been a it's been a little kind of uh, it has had some curves to it and curls to it. But um, I've always had as long as I can remember and I have like a really uh, intense memory. Actually, I remember vividly things that happened when I was two years old. As long as I can remember, I've always had a deep wonder and awe about nature and processes in nature. And then at the same time, feeling that something in the realm of humans is somewhat off. And I was never able to articulate it, of course, and I was never really able to explain it, but it's somehow been my guiding in, in my uh, whole path of trying to figure out. Basically, if you ask me what I'm doing is, I'm trying to figure out what, and now I'm trying to not swear, the beep is going on in this world, right? Why are we humans in this way when clearly there are other ways in which we could human a lot better? And why are we so out of uh, alignment with all the rest of the natural world that we came from? We live on this beautiful planet and somehow we're doing our best to, to try to forget that fact, I think. And, um, and, and with all the traveling, of course, I do because we, we work in, I work in many, many different countries. It's, uh, it's the same scenario everywhere, almost everywhere, that there's this weird disconnect, a lot of suffering and struggling in being human, and then a very uh, uh, um, palpable disconnect from the natural world. So that's been my kind of motivation all the way through. So I, have, I was uh, fortunate enough to be apprenticed by a professor when I was studying uh, at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And, uh, and that meant I had a, a, just a, a remarkable way of, of being educated, right? Because I could ask questions and really learn through thinking and reflecting myself. I had full access to his amazing library. When he passed, I was the first I got to pick the volumes of uh, from the library that, that I really needed to keep. And, you know, he always wrote little notes in the margin. So when I read those books, I can still see his comments and be in dialogue and so on. So all of that. And then, um, and then this I've always had a, a deep sense of kind of responsibility for those who 
who are able to do things or who knows how to do things or who feel that they should be doing things, we are probably the ones who should do things. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of in that mix there. And I've had all these, uh, this incredibly, incredibly privileged situation of, you know, being part American, but part Danish growing up in the Danish system and been, you know, free, free education and all of those things. And then having this ability to, to do work that seems to be really meaningful for many people. So that's my commitment to, to, to stay on this path. That is incredible. And I think um, we are in an inflection point in education where arguably this 100-year-old factory model of sorting kids by test scores is not really uh, aligned with, with nature and the development of adolescent brain uh, development yeah. and uh, emotional development. Yeah. Could you comment on this misalignment currently between public education k-12 and the just amount of testing that's been going on especially now with this concept of learning loss you know sort of stigmatizing this whole generation as you know these uh, generation of lost learners your, your your comments and reflection on that yeah thank you mike it's a big topic it's a really big topic and one of the things, and, and this is one of the places where my genuine puzzlement with what's going on is, is arising again, is on the one hand, scientifically, we know a lot about healthy development and learning, right? We know what it, what kids need. We know what it takes to have a healthy brain. We know a whole lot of things about what it takes to relate in a good way and where learning is really supported in that structure. And yet you go to the system of education, the, the very structure of how we do education is entirely not designed to produce those kinds of outcomes. So the reason why we're working with compassionate systems change and not some new curriculum or some programmatic intervention is we really need to redesign the structure of education. If we're not redesigning the structure of education, the beauty about working with systems thinking is uh, structure shapes behavior. The structure of education is producing particular behaviors right now. As we see uh, those outcomes, it's students who are primarily disconnected who don't really understand why they need to go to school. There is a lot of lack of engagement. Um, and, the, and, and of course, the whole uh, mental health and well-being is radically declining everywhere in the world. Let me just inform you with one piece of statistic might, that you might know, and we might even have talked about it before, but I just, I, it just puts things on edge. The, the decade leading up to COVID, those 10 years, the suicide attempts and suicide rates in American teenagers increased by 100%. Clearly, there is something that we need to do to redesign the way in which our kids are brought up in society. Because if kids want to kill themselves, and that's increasing over time, then there's something really missing from the equation that we're not taking into account. And as you pointed to, this structure of education was built for uh, um, 
you know, industrialized model of, of society, right? We needed factory workers who could go out and do stuff in factories, which is entirely not what the future looks like for hardly anyone on this planet now. And um, the, the challenge is that education is a very rigid structure because it's intergenerational, which means everybody has gone to school. Everybody has a very fixed mental model, a mindset about what school looks and feels like. It's not supposed to have, you're not supposed to have fun. You're not supposed to enjoy it. You need to learn to read and write. You need these capabilities so that you can go out and get a good job and yada, yada, yada. We're basically training kids to a future that no longer exists. And that leads to that sense of disconnect. And at the same time, we're not addressing any of the big issues, not because people in the system are not willing to do that, but because there is a complete lack of education around what that takes. And so if the structure in place is designed to produce outcomes that is beneficial for factor, for training factory workers, and we try to add in all kinds of programmatic inter interventions to somehow ameliorate that, you're not going to get a, a, a new design. You're not going to change the structure around. What you are going to do is you're going to put uh, pressure on individuals who care deeply about kids, who will do anything they can to push against the structure to create little safe havens for kids. And you know as well as I do what happens to those people, Mike. Some of them have breakdowns immediately. It's too much. Some of them continue for 30 years to push back against, and they're the magical teachers, and I always felt seen and met, and it was so meaningful to me, and so on and so forth. As soon as that individual leaves the system, it implodes, and the, and the rigid structures take over again. So we need to redesign the system of education so that it consistently begins to produce, produce outcomes that we would like to see. And for us, those outcomes are outcomes of compassionate systems change, human flourishing, kids who love learning and who are, you know, the uh, becoming thriving human beings, flourishing human beings who know how to take action, who understand themselves, who knows how to relate to other people and who understand the large complex issues that we're all facing in our world today and knows how to meaningfully engage with other people in trying to solve some of those issues. Also, when these people have a difference in opinion or a difference in political stance or a difference in religion or a difference in skill color, all of those things, that that is part of, of the purpose of this work that we do. So how do we make that happen in the classroom? Because I have, I mean, this is something that our district, Anaheim Union, is has been doing it and in terms of the systems change, you're talking about um, making um, compassion one of our five C's. I mean, it's really about whole child education uh, the main driver. Yeah. Um, how do we get there? Because so many of my colleagues are moving back to what they know prior pre-pandemic, which is test scores. Yeah. Um, and to, to your point, already the indicators were there that, hey, the system is not working. Um, what what do you say to those folks that are hesitant or say, Dr. Bull, we'll, we'll, we'll put your program in after school? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, intentionally, we haven't developed a program because a programmatic intervention cannot create systems change. Mm -hmm. So this is so you're asking, how do we get there? I think it's a lifelong journey, Mike. I don't think that there is a. I don't, I don't think we'll ever actually check the box and say, now we've done it. But I do think that the more people can come together 
and really reflect together on what would we like to see? What, what is actually our vision for this? You know, the, what's our purpose with educating children? What kind of young person would we like to have come out of our education system? And those conversations, weirdly enough, are, hap- are not happening in most places. So if I'm thinking about what kind of young people would I like to have coming out of having been gone through the system of education, public system of education in Anaheim. Well, I'd like somebody who is uh, an ethical person, a kind person, somebody who knows, have really great critical and analytical thinking skills, somebody who knows how to relate well, somebody who, who knows who they are in the world and how they can best take action from that standpoint and not constantly try to be someone else. I mean, I'm all in favor of college to career readiness and helping kids on the path and all that, but we're overlooking something vitally important in that, which is if I don't have a sense of purpose or it's not meaningful to me to choose the style of education on my path in life, very hard for me to feel connected to anything when I'm not even connected to the things that I get up to do every damn day. The grave statistics about the Uh, more than 70% of adult Americans who have uh, moderate to strong disliking of their uh, daily jobs, right? It's sad. It's our one life. And if we can't, if we can't have a sense of purpose with our choices in that, it's very hard to think that we can have a, a, a live a nourishing life where we have, where we can somehow muster the energy that it, that it will uh, take from so many of us to come together and start doing things differently when we are confronted with all the large challenges that we are today. Migration rates and, uh, you know, the rising of the uh, water, which will impact a lot of people in California and, 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 you know, sea level rise and so on. So with so much hate being marketed based on fear and fear of the other, which I, I think both of us would agree begins with being dis, uh, detached from your own self. Um, how do you teach compassion in the yeah. schools? Yeah, it's 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 a good question. So first off, I don't ever try to impose anything on anyone. I have zero interest in trying to convince anybody about anything. So it's always by invitation. I think one of the I think there is a fundamental principle in all of this, which is that when we have such uh, um, underdeveloped emotional literacy as most of pe- most of the people in our cultures do, um, mm-hmm. it's very hard to discern what are the other options. And fear and anger are the two are two of the strongest motivators and two of the strongest. Uh, emotions that can easily take over. Now, when we cultivate our emotional literacy, we learn to relate to the emotions. The emotions themselves are not the problem. It's how we show up with them that become really problematic when we become violently aggressive or so full of fear and anxiety that we're unable to function in a good way. So what we can do is we can invite people into a space and say, there is another option. And part of my teaching, at least, and, and, and deep conviction for me is this is not political. This is not, it's not political. It's not, it's undogmatic. It's not religious. It's not anything like that. I think one of the things that has really tricked us and tripped us up this time around, Mike, is 
way too many things became political. And they're not supposed to be. It's, it's dangerous, I think, when politics becomes a place where you have to somehow have unified opinions about things and you can't make choices for yourself. Because this is for everybody who has concerns about the well-being of kids mm -hmm. and who knows that if the kids are to thrive in the system of education, you know, the adults around the kids actually have to thrive as well. And it's not enough if the teachers are thriving and getting, you know, more better equipped to deal with the amount of trauma and disconnect and, and fear and anger and all of that that's present in the classrooms today. They, you have to have people higher up in the system who are really in support of that. That's why we work with the whole systems level. You have to have people at all levels of the system starting to resonate in a different way in order to actually begin to produce these outcomes. So how do we get there? And the, the whole kind of um, polarization and, and bigotry that we're seeing in so many spaces now are, in, in fact, two sides of the same coin, I think. And I have one mm -hmm. kind of drum that I like to beat. I have many drums that I like to beat. I'm sure I, I could entertain you for hours with all my rants, but this one I will bring out right now, though. And that's, um, you know, when we have, uh, um, when we have a, a system in place like this, and, um, and we're constantly, you know, in the, in these, having all these people who are, who are, you know, in opposition to what we try to do. The one thing that we could all come together about, I think, is that we really care about our kids. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could meet there. And then the other thing is, people will ask me then, okay, so you have a successful scenario, like, for example, in Anaheim. So now how do you scale it? And I'm like, you can't scale things like that. You can grow things. And I think what you've been doing so successfully in Anaheim is you've been growing a systems change process. And you probably have the luxury of having enough buy-in from people around you, enough people at the different levels of the system who are able to have a shared language, a shared vision, a shared kind of attitude and orientation to how they want to work, that it actually works. Now, trying to take that and just fabricate it and put it somewhere else mm -hmm. obviously wouldn't work because we're human beings. We are living systems. Everything we do is living systems work. So if you imagine you go to a farmer and you ask that person, how do you scale your crops? Everybody would laugh at you. But somehow we think that we can take dead and rigid structures and apply them upon ourselves, our living system self, the whole way in which kids operate in schools. Look at it. It's beautifully organic and completely unpredictable. And there's so many moving pieces all the time. And then we try to apply a dead and rigid structure, 45 minutes for this, then this, then this, then this, that everybody knows. All science tells us that this is the worst possible way to induce learning. And now that's the structure that we apply because we somehow want some outcomes that has been stuck in our minds that this is what we need from education. We can do a lot better than that. And the last piece of the rant, I was trying to wrap three rants into one here, but the last piece of it is, I'm a biologist, as you can probably tell. I have such great 
awe and respect for natural systems, right? And when we look at an ecosystem, for example, we know that the more diversity and the greater variation there is within the ecosystem, the more resilient it is. So when you have monoculture and you have the flooding, the, you know, the water that comes or the burning or whatever, it goes away. And you have a really intact and healthy ecosystem, it can withstand anything. That means that even the people with the radical different opinions about how things should be, or even the people with the radically different political standpoints, they should be included also in the system. They are part of the system, whether we like it or not. But how to do that in a way where everybody finds a voice and a meaningful way of interacting. And I'm sure that there are ways in which we can have differences of opinion that comes from a place of respect and kindness. It has been done before in history. I'm sure we can figure out a way to do that again because then we can all grow. And it's not about trying to streamline everybody to think the same way or feel the same way or you can only do this if you're, you know, check the box on all these levels. Everybody in the system are in fact part of the system. So how to work with that, the complexity of that is really the big question here. And I think you just answered my last question. Um, in an earlier conversation, you talked about the need to develop sort of a long-term strategic sensing of yeah. what is needed to prepare young people for this very volatile, uncertain world. Um, any final comments about that and yeah. um, balancing that with the sense of urgency? Because certainly we're almost living in a dystopian world, right? Arguably, especially yeah. with climate change and all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, how do we prepare young people for uh, the sort of the emotional resiliency ahead? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Mike. And also... I mean, so incredibly relevant. Our take on that, I, we, we, um, we have a lot of kind of uh, um, inspiration from particularly neuroscience, but most, you know, science of learning and development, neuroscience and so on. And one of the things that we do know is that our brains are on complete overload, right? We were not designed for, we have not evolved for the level of information and input that we're constantly confronted with. And uh, that, that means that the buffer that we would naturally have for, you know, withstanding, you know, adverse situations or so on, for many of us, it's gone, right? We are in a constant mode of alert or anxiety, and it doesn't take much before we flip over. So, in that in that sense, um, we've gone to we we have integrated contemplative practices as an integral part of all this work. So that can be grounding practices, focus practices, meditation, breathing techniques, what we call loving kindness practices, self care practices, and so on. And it has to be integral to the work because first off, when our brains are in total overload, it's very hard for us to learn. A brain that is re-traumatized or constantly taken by traumatic kind of sensing, you can't learn stuff. You're in survival mode all the time. A lot of our kids are like that. And in fact, a lot of our educators are like that as well, constantly. It's just become so norm that it's almost like a baseline now. So, so in that, and the reason why we have integrated that is, for example, we have at MIT, we have, you know, the elder um, 
brain scientist, one of the most renowned brain scientists in the world, Jan Gabrielli, who leads the whole uh, uh, brain science effort at MIT, McGovern Brain Center. And, um, and he was involved a couple of years ago in a, um, for the first time, he doesn't have any previous background with any of this, but he was involved in a mindfulness in education study with, I believe it was fifth graders in Boston, and they had like 8,000 or something. And, uh, and literally, his, his, I love this quote, what he came out and said after that, he said, if mindfulness was a drug, it would be ripped off the shelves of the pharmacies. That's just the wow. wonderful quote. If mindfulness wow. was a drug, you would rip it off the shelves of the, of the pharmacies. And it's true. It's the only way we know, at least now, from a scientific perspective, of how we can actually counterbalance all the overload that our brains are dealing with right now. And one of the things, for example, that was shown early on, one of the reasons why we, we have this uh, uh, such an integral part of the work is when the amygdala complex, the whole kind of what we call the emotional brain, you know, the fight, flight, and freeze mode, when that gets activated, when we are kind of, you know, in any kind of, of reactive state, um, we tend to become emotionally hijacked, right? And most of us have, you know, habitual ways in which we get emotionally hijacked. And if you can't come to think about anything right now, think about the traditional fights there will be in your family over the holidays, for example. They're usually the same damn fights 40 years straight, right? We, we have the same kind of habitual ways in which we respond to certain kinds of triggers. Now, what we can see is that um, that's called the fast route in the brain. So information goes to that amygdala complex first before it goes to the prefrontal cortex for more kind of analytical processing or cognitive mm -hmm. processing. What we can see is that the density between the amygdala complex, the emotional brain and the thinking brain increases. There are more and more neurons that comes together in that pathway. It doesn't mean that you don't get triggered any longer. It just means that it's a lot quicker for you to go to the analytical kind of processing mind instead. And you can do that through regular mindfulness practices over time. So that is just a great example of somehow we can rebalance ourselves or we can ground ourselves and not become entirely as overwhelmed by everything that's coming at us in the world, including 800 messages on social media and 50,000 emails popping up every day when you're on your computer trying to focus and so on. Our attention span, I don't know if you've noticed, I've certainly noticed with myself, my attention span has gone down dramatically over the last couple of years. After COVID, it's been insane because I've just been on so many screens all the time. I yeah. can triple screen really well if you want me to. And I don't think that's particularly healthy for any of us, just yeah. for the record. Yeah. Right, right. Well, we have been so lucky to have this 20-minute conversation with you, Dr. Mate Miriam Bull, of uh, co-founder of these MIT Systems Awareness with Peter Senge. Yeah. On behalf of all of our listeners, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure.